This is They Create Worlds, episode 132, Eugene Jarvis. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hey, hello. Well, we were going to do something that we don't do that often. I don't think we've really done this since way back in the day when we took a big, long look at Gumpei Yukoi. We are going to look instead today at Eugene Jarvis. That's right. We don't do many biographical episodes because, really, there are very few individuals where you get an added degree of insight by looking at them biographically instead of weaving their story in amongst this game or that game or this game and that company. But there are a few select individuals out there that really transcend any one game, really transcend any one company, and are just really incredibly important to the advancement of video games and video gaming as a whole. I don't think anyone would argue that the great American coin-operated video game designer Eugene Jarvis fits into that category. A man, I might add, who, unlike most of his contemporaries that were making games in the golden age, the so-called golden age of video games in the early 80s, is still in the business of making coin-operated video games today. He's a manager now. He's not in the trenches designing, though I'm sure everyone in the company benefits from his input. But he still has a company today, Raw Thrills, that is still churning out a couple of games a year. Even in crazy old 2020, they managed to ship a couple of things out. Truly one of the legends in the coin-operated amusement business and also the video game business. Now, I think he's come up multiple times in the past when we talked about pinball, a lot of the arcade Mm -hmm. stuff. We talked about Atari. His name has come up multiple times, if I recall correctly. Well, and especially in our episode on Williams, because the vast majority of his career was spent working with Williams Entertainment, Williams Electronic Entertainment, very occasionally working at Williams. But as we'll see, he spent far more time for various reasons being an independent contractor with them than being an employee with them. That is where he is most significantly worked and where most of his biggest games have been. We did talk about it in that context, but we have not talked about it in the context of Jarvis himself as a designer, what makes him tick, why he made the games he did, and what he felt about some of the games that other people were making. There is still a lot of material that will be somewhat new here if you've listened to some of our other episodes, even the Williams episode where he looms very large. Okay, to start off with, I presume we're not going to hit his early life and all that other fun stuff. Well, there is a little bit to talk about there, because he is one of these individuals whose love of the industry was shaped by a childhood as a consumer of products within the industry. So we really do have to start there. Eugene Jarvis was born in 1955 in Palo Alto. He was born right in the heart of what would, less than two decades later, become known as Silicon Valley and be this place where technology was blooming, where entertainment technology was blooming. Of course, Palo Alto is home to Stanford University, 
which plays a big part in a lot of early experiments going on with computers and with computer interaction, whether it be Douglas Engelbart's work with the mouse at the Stanford Research Institute or John McCarthy's work at the Stanford AI Lab, which is where Nolan Bushnell first saw Space War. This is really an important place, important to Eugene's story as well. As a youth, he discovered a little hole-in-the-wall place nearby called Johnny's Smoke Shop. Johnny's Smoke Shop. Right. And in the back of this place, they had pinball games. You know, that's not helping the whole arcade misconception of a seedy den of delinquents smoking and drinking. Oh, yeah. No, I think this was, I think from what Jarvis has said, this is definitely a place that played into that stereotype. I mean, as with any stereotype, there's always a grain of truth hidden in there somewhere. While the pinball's industry's reputation, the coin-op industry's reputation was a little overblown, there's no doubt that there were some smoke-filled rooms of ill repute housing these games. But he discovered pinball at Johnny's Smoke Shop and he became obsessed with it. I mean, he was a really obsessive pinball player. You know, we talked about how his company today is called Raw Thrills. Raw Thrills really sums up exactly what Jarvis himself loves about coin-operated amusement. He is a thrill junkie. I mean, he's, he's not, as far as I know, one of these guys that's bungee jumping off of bridges or jumping out of airplanes, but the kick that rush of adrenaline that you get as stuff is going on all around you do you have to keep your head and do the right thing at the right time to bring order to the chaos the way you feel while you're doing that is really what drives him you know he was a child at a very important time in pinball history which we did talk about in our williams episode in our pinball episode a time when pinball was becoming less about uh, you know, just bat the ball with a flipper every so often, and then it's going to go through all of these bumpers and ching, 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 and then come back down again, and, you know, you hit it with the flipper again, and so on. This was the period of time when the game was becoming more structured, where there would be targets that would only be up at certain times, or there would be targets that you were supposed to knock down in a certain order in order to score more points. The 60s was the time when multi-ball was invented, and you could have more than one ball flying all over the place. So we'll see as we get into Jarvis's video game output that there's a lot of pinball in what Jarvis did. Not that games like Defender or Robotron were in any way pinball games, but the idea that you've got a lot going on at once and it's your job to figure out what order to tackle this mess in order to maximize your score that's, in a nutshell, 1960s pinball and the type of pinball Jarvis was playing as a boy. Now, being near Stanford, of course, meant that he was also exposed to computers at a fairly early date. He did not go to Stanford, but as I said, Palo Alto, that is the town of Stanford. He could, you know, kind of bum around to places at the university. He saw his first computer in high school on a school trip, so he kind of got a familiarity with this idea that these computers exist. But even more interesting than that is he actually got to see the Galaxy game at the Stanford Treadsetter Student Union. We've talked about the Galaxy game before. Uh, do you remember what's going on with that one? 
No, I don't actually recall the exact specifics of it. All I do remember is that there's a game there. It's based off of the classic Space War game, or it's the predecessor to it. One of those two where you got the two ships, you're trying to destroy each other around a heavy gravity star. Right. It's based on Space War. It's the game, and we did an episode on it. We can put that in the show notes. It's the game that Bill Pitts and Hugh Tuck did together that faithfully recreated Space War as a coin-operated video game. They were doing this at the exact same time that Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney were doing their version, but they used a mini-computer, a PDP-11, in order to do this. So they were able to create a faithful version of the game, but it was way too expensive to enter production as opposed to Bushnell and Dabney, who made a lot of changes, made a game that was inspired by Space War, but was not exactly like Space War, and in doing so were able to produce something cheaper that could actually enter mass production. Even though the Galaxy game never went further than its test at Stanford and in other areas uh, surrounding the Stanford campus, that Galaxy game unit at the Treadsitter Union stayed in operation at Stanford until 1979. That one unit was played many, many times over and over again by Stanford students. Eugene Jarvis himself never actually played it. He hung around there as a high school student. He wasn't a college student, but he hung around there, and he saw other people play it. He watched other people play it. So he kind of understood before a lot of people did, certainly before a lot of people his age, that this video game thing was something that was coming and it was going to change this coin-operated world that he was already immersed in, in pinball. With all of that, his interest in arcade games, his interest in pinball, his interest in computers, does he major in electrical engineering? No. Does he major in computer science? No. He goes to the University of California at Berkeley and he majors in biochemistry. That does not seem like the appropriate response to that kind of inspiration. Well, and you know, Eugene Jarvis himself would agree with you, because he realized, why am I doing this? I love computers so much, I should be doing computers. Berkeley had a very good department for that, so yeah, he switched his major to computer science. (laughs) He worked a lot with the CDC, Control Data Corporation 6400 computer. He wrote some programs. He wrote some games. He was at Berkeley exposed to Space War itself. So he had seen the Galaxy game, even though he had not played it. But at Berkeley in college, he got a chance to play it. There was some old IBM mainframe of all things in the basement of the physics lab of the university that had an oscilloscope hooked up to it, and some person or another because, of course, it was not originally made to run on IBM mainframes, some person or another made a port of it and put it on this computer. So a lot of students would get together in the basement of this physics building and play the game, and he played a lot of Space War because he really was a junkie for this kind of thing. He loved how it felt, that surge of adrenaline you would get when playing these intense games, whether they be pinball games or early computer games we can see (laughs) that all of the pieces that are going to go into his monumental Defender are already taking shape. There's a lot of space war in Defender. 
there's a lot of pinball, quite frankly, in Defender. Again, in the way that you're kind of prioritizing targets and bringing order to the chaotic playfield, as you do in pinball. Of course, he's learning how to be a programmer, and he would have never made the game if he wasn't a programmer. So all of these early life experiences are playing directly into what his profession would be. He didn't start in video games. It turns out that he started out with Atari, but in pinball. Not the games division, specifically the pinball division. That's right. Of course, we've talked about Atari a few times, and we've talked about kind of the general coin-op market in this period a few times. But just as a reminder, right here in the middle of the 1970s is when pinball begins to make its transition away from electromechanical games where everything is relays and steppers and solenoids and all of these crazy mechanical or electromechanical parts to solid-state designs where all of the game logic is programmed in software and it's run by a microprocessor and a computer hardware system. The effect that this had on pinball was truly transformational for two very big reasons. The first reason being that you eliminate a lot of service headaches because mechanical parts break. If it moved, it breaks. Exactly. And there were a lot of mechanical parts in a pinball machine, plus a rat's nest of wires connecting it all together. Those things were messy, messy, messy machines. So you had uh, machines that were more reliable, stayed in service longer, broke down less, all of which, of course, increases profitability. The other main thing, which we've talked about before as well, is that once you have electronics in there, you can have computer memory in there. And you can have real scoring memory. Pinball was actually really a multiplayer game. It's funny to think of it that way today because, of course, only one person stands there and presses the button and hits the flippers. Since the 1950s, one of the main points of interest in pinball is that you would have two, sometimes even four, individuals taking turns on the machine. And so you would play a ball, and then when you lose your ball, your friend would take over, they would play a ball, and you'd challenge each other to see who would get the top score. These machines could, of course, keep track of multiple scores, but it was doing it electromechanically with a totalizer where it had scoring reels that were updated every time your score updated, and it could switch between which scoring reel it was updated. That kind of electric circuitry existed. But what it couldn't do is keep track of scoring modifiers. So we talked about how in the 60s the game had changed where, you know, hit this part of the board at the right time, get more points, or maybe this part of the board is only available to hit at a certain time, get more points. You could rack up score multipliers and really watch those points start to flow in. But there was no way to save the board state So as soon as your quarter was done, or your dime was done, really, your ball was done, all of that went back to zero when your friend took over, and then whatever multipliers he had went back to zero, and so on. When you have computer memory in there, now if you had an eight-time score multiplier going when you lost your ball, you can have that eight-time score multiplier back again (laughs) when your ball comes up again. It can keep track of more complex scoring chains across balls. Both of these things 
allowed pinball to just really take off and experience a new period of renaissance to do better than it had done since the Great Depression, since the 1930s and early 1940s. So Atari, even though Nolan Bushnell was still very focused on this new video game industry that he had played a significant role in creating, Nolan Bushnell and Joe Keenan and the management recognized that with pinball doing such huge business and with it going solid state, which is where Atari's expertise already was anyway with video games, it's all electronics, they needed to have a pinball division and they needed to try to put out some pinball tables. They knew that it would be challenging to compete with Chicago, so they tried to make themselves stand out by making extra wide tables, just something a little different than what the other companies were doing because they had to try something novel in order to get customers to buy from them instead of companies like Bally and Williams that have been in pinball since the 30s and 40s. Funnily enough, right before Eugene Jarvis graduated from Berkeley, some Atari people came around to interview the forthcoming electrical engineering and computer science graduates. He sat down with them and had a talk with them, and then never, ever heard from them again. Who knows why? I don't know if he said something they didn't like and they weren't impressed, or, you know, they lost his contact information back at the office. Who knows? Never heard back from them again. So he ended up taking a job with Hewlett-Packard, a good, respectable computer electronics company. He was put to work on a COBOL compiler, a compiler for the early high-level programming language COBOL. Be glad, kids, you don't have to play with that language anymore. You know, Jarvis had no fun playing with that language either. He hated it. And when I say hated it, I mean flames on the side of his face, burning, hated it. He quit after three days. He just quit. He was done with this. This is not why he got into computer programming, to work with COBOL. <laughs> Then, wouldn't you know, Atari finally got in touch with him. I mean, this is you know weeks later or something. I mean, way past the time that you would expect that a company that you sat down with would get back to you. But, you know, Atari in the Bushnell, Keenan years, it was a little fast, a little loose. You know, I guess that's just when they got around with it. But this was very fortuitous. It's not like he went back to Atari. It just so happened that right when he was quitting Hewlett-Packard, Atari came back to him and was like, well, hey, uh, you know, we talked to you a while back, and uh, yeah, want a job? He was like, yes. <laughs> but the opening that they had was in pinball, not in the video game division. But that was, I think, okay with him as well, because, as I said, I mean, he was a huge pinball player. So he became one of the first programmers. He's not a pinball designer. He's not doing table layouts. He's not coming up with themes. He's the programmer. He's the guy that makes it all work under the surface. You know how I said that Atari was a little fast and loose in these days? Yes. Well, the pinball division was really sort of fast and loose. Atari, quite frankly, had no business getting into pinball. You certainly understand the impetus for it. You understand why they wanted to be there because it's the area that's blowing up. But they didn't have the first idea of how to do pinball. They'd brought in a couple of people that had designed pinball before, but 
They had no idea how to make it all work. They had no idea how to go about procuring the parts because there's still a lot of funky little electromechanical parts in there even when you replace most of it with a processor. They could not compete with Chicago on cost because they'd been making pinball in Chicago since the 30s. So there was a whole infrastructure. It's not just the companies like Bally and Williams and Gottlieb that are manufacturing the tables, designing and manufacturing the tables. It's all the subcontractors for all of those parts. So, you know, they're all there in Chicago. There's no infrastructure like that in California. You don't have people there making the metal balls. You don't have people there making the bumpers, the rubber, the specialized formulas for the plastics, whatever else they're using. Yeah, cabinets, screws. Yeah, I mean, everything. I mean, they could get what they needed, obviously, but it was more expensive. They could not compete on cost. So it was a division that was in trouble from the moment it opened. Basically, within two weeks of being hired as a fresh university graduate, as a programmer, basically a junior programmer, I don't know that his title was junior programmer, but he's right out of school, so even if that's not his title, he's basically a junior programmer in the Atari Pinball Division. Within two weeks, he is the head of programming of the Atari Pinball Division. Either their programmers there are really, really bad, or they had no one else to do it. It's really the latter more than the former. It's just they had resignations and transfers. It was a big, giant mess. Jarvis was, quite frankly, in no way interested in fixing it, personally. (laughs) You know, they made some good games, some interesting games, but... They were plagued by all sorts of issues, particularly reliability issues, because, again, these are people that had never manufactured a pinball table before. Manufacturing a pinball table is very, very different than manufacturing a video game. Very, very different. So they just didn't have a handle on it. So the games were hamstrung by all of these problems. Jarvis, he didn't join the company to be in charge of this and try to make it work. So he burned out. So in 1979, he left. (laughs) He quit. Just like he quit Hewlett-Packard, he quit. We'll see that Eugene Jarvis is definitely a man that wants to do what he wants to do, wants to have fun doing it, and if he can't have that, he's not going to work at your company. That's nothing to do with his work ethic. The man's a hard worker. It's just he doesn't want the drama. He doesn't want the hassle. He doesn't want the bureaucracy. He just wants to be able to to make really cool, really action-packed games, and is that so much to ask? Apparently at these first two companies, it is. (laughs) So he goes and works in his father's business, who I think is down in Costa Rica at this point. I don't know what his father did, but down in Costa Rica, he spends some time traveling South America, but he does discover that he misses coin-op. He really does enjoy this stuff. He didn't like the environment at Atari. He didn't like suddenly being put in charge of everything two weeks after joining the company. But he really did enjoy making this stuff. You know, he comes back to the Bay Area and comes back to the U.S. He's thinking about getting involved in this again if he can. And he gets a phone call from a former co-worker at Atari named Steve Ritchie. Steve Ritchie, we won't go into all of his personal history here because this isn't his story. 
Steve Ritchie is a legendary pinball designer. He's not the programmer like Jarvis. He's actually the guy creating the games, designing the layouts and deciding what's worth what points and what to put here and what to put there. I mean, he's the actual table designer. His first job in the industry was at Atari as well. He was a young guy around Jarvis's age. He learned the ropes from one of the experienced guys that Atari brought in to the company, you know, kind of learned how to design tables. He got poached, quite frankly, by Williams, because we talked about this, of course, a bit in our Williams episode, but right in this time period is when Williams is about to come into its own because they've brought in a new president named Mike Stroll, who really is good with electronics. I mean, he worked at National Semiconductor. It also turned out, even though his background had not been in coin-operated amusements or in pinball, he was really good at seeing where the fun was. He didn't design the tables himself. He kind of innately understood what made pinball fun and what made a pinball table fun. And so as the president of the division, as the guy with final responsibility to make these kind of decisions, he had a great knack for knowing what would be good and what would sell. And so he was building a team to really revitalize Williams and get them into this solid state design. Richie is one of the people he poached in. Richie and Jarvis had worked together at Atari. And Richie was impressed with Jarvis as a programmer, and they'd become friends. Richie called him up and basically said, you know, if you want to get back in this business, there is a job waiting for you out here in Chicago. So Jarvis said, sounds good to me. That is when Jarvis joined Williams Electronics in 1979 to be a programmer on solid-state pinball machines. He partnered with Richie on a couple of games. He did three pinball tables overall as the programmer. A couple of these were truly, truly legendary games. He worked on a game called Gorgar. We talked about it, I believe, probably in our Williams episode. It's notable as the first pinball table that had synthesized speech as part of the presentation. And, of course, he was responsible for programming that because he was the programmer on that game. He worked on Firepower which was the first solid-state pinball game that had a multi-ball feature. As we said, Williams invented multi-ball back in the 60s, but this was the first time in solid-state, microprocessor-driven pinball system that you had multi-ball. Firepower became a massive hit over its life. It sold over 17,000 units. It was the number one earning pinball table on location for an entire year, according to the replay and play meter charts. Now, these are estimates because it's not like anyone's counting all the quarters that are going into thousands of arcades and street locations across the country. But both replay and play meter would do operator surveys where they would ask operators which games of yours are doing the best, and then they'd compile all this information and create popularity charts that way. Firepower was the number one earning table for an entire year. It was released in January 1980, and for the entire year of 1980, it was the number one pinball table. And it was a top five earning pinball table for another year after that. Now, to be fair, this is the period of time when pinball enters decline again because video's on the rise. But still, Firepower is an absolutely legendary table And Eugene Jarvis is the person who programmed it, and Steve Ritchie is the one who designed it. Just legendary. A funny thing happened on the way to Firepower. 
little game called Space Invaders started making the rounds uh, in the United States. Probably heard of that one. Nope. <laughs> not ringing any bells. No, no, no. I'm not as I see some things coming towards me right now. I hear a song going dun, 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 dun. Absolutely. Well, of course, this is right in the period of time when Space Invaders is coming out and really setting the groundwork for what is commonly called the golden age of video games or of video arcade games. Believe me, for an action junkie like Eugene Jarvis, this stuff was catnip. This was a whole nother level of, oh my goodness, you think pinball is intense? Space Invaders, now there's some intensity. Jarvis absolutely fell in love, head over heels, for Space Invaders. When Williams decided in 1980 that the arrival of Space Invaders and Asteroids and Galaxian and this new wave of video games that's just eating up the quarters like mad required a response, required that they put a team together to counter this and get their own piece of this action, Jarvis volunteered and made sure he was on that team. They put together kind of a crack strike force. Uh, Ken Fidesna, who was kind of the number one guy in engineering, assembled just a small team of engineers, technicians, designers, programmers. They put them in an off-site location. Seberg, the parent company of Williams, had very briefly tried to get into the slot machine business. It didn't go well for them, so they shut that down, but they still had the building where they had been trying to do the slot machine thing. So they took this small video team put them in the old slot machine building so they'd be away from everybody else, no distractions, and told them, all right now, make a game, make a good game, make a hit game. Or else. (laughs) Right. Jarvis, who is the primary programmer, also took the lead in conceptualizing what they would do. First of all, it had to be something intense. It had to be something action-y. He figured, you know, something like Space Invaders. More of that, please. Space theme, lots of enemies coming at you, split-second decisions on what to do, yada, 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 all that stuff. Asteroids had also come out by this time as well. One of the things that Asteroids did that Space Invaders did not is that it allowed you to roam all over the screen, but it also had screen wrapping. You went all the way to the right, You came back in on the left. If you went all the way up, you came back in at the bottom, and vice versa. You weren't confined to your box. Even though the game was still a single screen, you could move off the edge one way and reappear on the edge the other way. So it's like, okay, this is fun. That's good. You know what would be even cooler than disappearing off of one end and reappearing on the other end? What if you reached the edge of the screen... And it just kept going. Scrolling, Jeff. What if there was scrolling? Games wouldn't take advantage of that for years. (laughs) And, you know, it's not quite the first game that scrolled. I mean, Atari had a football game, for instance, and that scrolled over a 100-yard play field. The entire play field wasn't on the screen at once. 
So it's not like it's the first time there was ever scrolling. You know, technically, even a game like Galaxian used scrolling because there's a star field that is constantly moving down the screen to kind of give you a sense of movement. It doesn't feel like you're really participating in a larger action space because you're rooted to the bottom of the screen and there's no terrain or features appearing because it's an open space. So it's not like scrolling had never been done before. It had. But this is the first time that you had scrolling in the sense that we think of it in an action game, where as you move right or left, as the case may be, more of the world is being revealed and it feels like you are moving through a defined geographical space. That is 100% new, even though scrolling hardware itself is not new. The first version of this was basically just endlessly scrolling to the right and blowing up enemies as they come along. That just wasn't working, because here's the other thing about Eugene Jarvis. He likes the thrill, but just blowing up everything in sight over and over again, it loses its impact. Think about it. Anyone who's an adrenaline junkie, this is true. You know, if you do something intense and you do something intense a lot, you build up a tolerance to it, both physically and psychologically, and you don't get the same thrill out of it anymore. You don't get that same hit of adrenaline or dopamine or whatever chemicals are going through your body. You get diminishing returns. They're doing this thing, but it gets old fast. It's like for a moment it's fun, and then it's not fun. His good friend Steve Ritchie is not part of the development team, but, you know, he's a friend and he's checking out what they're doing. He kind of suggests, well, why don't you add a feature where the ship can turn around and then it can go on in, in both directions? Okay, that's cool. So they do that, but that doesn't add enough difference. It doesn't add enough depth to make it more interesting. You're still left with the same problem. If it's just destroy everything coming at you, it gets old fast. They also, at one point, tried to do it more like asteroids, where you have the ability to rotate an object, in this case a turret, around to hit different targets and kind of implement real physics and everything. The problem with that was what allowed asteroids to work, and we've talked about this before, is that asteroids had a vector-based hardware display. So it could have a much higher graphical resolution than raster-based hardware systems, which Williams' hardware system was. If you're going to have something as precision as changing the direction that a turret is pointing, rotating a turret around, that requires a high enough resolution and a precise enough graphics that you can tell very easily what direction something's turning. Unless you want things to just be these giant square blobs that are horribly ugly to look at, you're not going to get that on this resolution of hardware. So they had to scrap that. That's not working either. Nothing is working. So they've got something, but it's not going anywhere. You know, they're kind of marking time. They're filling out the world. They create a landscape underneath because they've got the scrolling thing going on. And so you want to have a landscape with the scrolling because otherwise you don't get the sense that you're moving anywhere. You get the Galaxian problem which had a scrolling star field, but it didn't feel like you were moving. So they want to do something about that, and so they uh, have a landscape. Then they populate the landscape with these little people. Then Jarvis has his breakthrough. What if 
the enemies, instead of just hurtling directly at the player, are there to abduct the little men off the surface and carry them away. Now they have a game. This is going to be true in just about everything that Jarvis does, every game that he does going forward. You need to have a strategic element that provides purpose to your adrenaline-fueled rampage. Presumably, I have to go and defend these poor people on the ground from the horrible rampages of alien monstrosities. Exactly. Hence the name Defender. You know, this is really important. I mean, we, you know, we're spending a lot of time on this and we've spent time on it before because, of course, it's so important. But in the context of Jarvis himself as a game designer, what's important about this is that he understands that you need an objective beyond the objective. Not just blowing up everything, but making sure you figure out where the abducting units are, the landers, where they're going after the people and making sure that you get there in time to stop them. You've got this scrolling play field. It's a fixed play area. It's not like later scrolling shooters. There is an end on either end and there's a reverse button so you can travel around it. But then you have a radar. You have a mini-map. Not quite the first mini-map, I don't think, in video games, but a very early mini-map that shows you where you are in this wider scheme of things and where the enemies are and where these humans may be about to get abducted on a part of the screen that you're not currently on. They have a really advanced hardware in terms of the number of colors it can display. A fellow programmer, a teenage prodigy named Sam Dicker, makes some beautiful explosions that are generated algorithmically, which means that every time you blow things up, the explosions are just a little different because it's not a standard explosion graphic but there's actually physics to the explosion and there's some randomness in it so they have these great bold colors they have these beautiful explosions great sound all of this going on intense action but intense action with a strategic goal it's a super difficult game it has a five button control scheme it has a joystick but the joystick is only for moving up and down remember he was a space war player and he saw galaxy games So he based some of his controls off of those games. So there is a joystick to move up and down, but then there's a button for thrust, how you move forward. There's a button for reverse. There's a button for hyperspace, which can get you out of a jam. It's very similar to hyperspace and space war. Again, a game he played a lot. And there's a button for a smart bomb that you are periodically able to use to clear the screen of enemies, kind of an uh uh-oh button again. All of these different buttons plus a a joystick, enemies coming in in all directions, multiple types of enemies, each with their own behavior patterns. And you have to keep track of where the people are. You have to keep track of the mini-map in addition to what's going on on the screen. This is a complicated game, Jeffrey. Let me tell you. Certainly a far cry from my Nintendo, where I just have a D-pad and A and B and a start and select. Exactly. Lots of buttons and lots to keep track of. If this game had come out in 1973 it would have been an absolute dog when video games were new. But you know what? The hardcore score-chasing population, they'd had Space Invaders. Then they'd had Galaxian and Asteroids, which were a little harder. They were ready for something like Defender, which was even a little harder than that. It took the arcade by storm. It sold 55,000 units. It was the number one game on location in traditional uh, street locations and arcades for months and months. The first sample units reached the market in December 1980. It didn't reach mass market until 1981. It was just the biggest thing around. 
except for one game that trounced it in non-traditional locations, and that was Pac-Man. So you had this dichotomy in the arcade market and the coin-op market at this time. On the one hand, you got the latest, greatest, most brilliant, difficult score-chasing game, Defender, for the hardcore crowd, and you had the cutesy, casual, easier to control, but still not a pushover, Pac-Man, to bring in a more general audience. One joystick instead of five buttons. No score chasing. There's a high score, but no high score table. So there's still score chasing, but less emphasized. Fewer things to keep track of on the screen. Only the four ghosts and those four ghosts move in patterns. So these two games complement each other brilliantly, and I don't think you get the absolute explosion over 1981 and 1982 with just one of them alone. I mean, obviously, Pac-Man was humongously successful, 96,000 units sold. But I think you needed the Defender on the other end for that contrast to really drive the market forward. So, I mean, Eugene Jarvis's game is one of the most significant. I mean, Space Invaders, Asteroids, Defender, Pac-Man. Basically, if you were going to make a Mount Rushmore of the golden age of arcade games, that period from 79 to 82, those are probably the four you'd put on it. Maybe you'd find room for Donkey Kong. But, I mean, those four games are so significant. And you know what? Eugene Jarvis hated Pac-Man. Really? He hated Pac-Man? Hated it because it was so simple. Eugene Jarvis gave an interview for the book Video Invaders, which was a 1982 book that was really the first book to really explore video game history in a meaningful way. We talked about it in our episode where we discussed video game books. He gave an interview in that book where he just railed against Pac-Man because he really felt that the point of coin-operated games, whether it be pinball or video, was to get the biggest adrenaline rush possible and to get the biggest score possible under the most challenging of conditions cutesy Pac-Man with its one joystick and four ghosts and, ooh, look, I'm collecting dots. I'm the Pac-Man. Ooh. Not his thing. But not just that he didn't like it. He thought that direction was bad for video games. <laughs> um, I, I think he was wrong there. I think you need both. But that just goes even further to reveal kind of who the man is <laughs> behind this product, you know? Right. So he just really wants the challenge of the games. He just wants the action and adrenaline junkie. And he wants to make things more complex, more involved, more layers, more mm-hmm. interesting. Pac-Man's here going, hey, I got some ghosts. I got a maze. You got to go get some pellets. You're good. Looks at that and goes, what? I only go up, <laughs> down, left, right. I don't even get B.A.? <laughs> exactly. Defender is a hit. Defender is a big hit. And Williams is like, oh my gosh, look at how much money we made on this one game. And we did that with just this one little small team. Just think what we would happen if we had dozens upon dozens of people making these games and we were putting out, you know, five, six, seven video games at a time. They would all be hits like Defender and oh my God, how much money we would make. Yeah, about that. There's a lot of companies that thought that, and it usually makes it worse. To make a long story short there, they greatly expanded their video game division. They brought in all sorts of fresh green talent. 
once again, Eugene Jarvis wanted nothing to do with this. Nothing. So let me guess. He says, goodbye, I'm out. Exactly. Once again, we're seeing a pattern here. He's had three jobs since he has uh, graduated from college, and he has now quit all three of them. But he doesn't quit Williams, and he doesn't quit video games. He tells them what he wants to do. He says, this work environment isn't working for me, so I am going to leave this company, and I am going to found my own independent video game developer, and I will design games for you, and you will manufacture them. And Williams was like, okay. So he and Larry DeMar, another programmer at the company that also did a little programming on Defender, and uh, they became friends, left Williams to found a company called VidKids. Kids with a Z, because that's how you know it's cool. VidKids. So that they could continue to make games. So all of their subsequent output continues to be released by Williams. They're Williams Games. But they are no longer in-house at Williams. He is at his own company, VidKids. How does the difficult adrenaline junkie, I don't like Pac-Man game developer follow-up defender? Well, he does the same thing, only harder, and uh, creates a sequel to Defender by the name of Stargate. Nothing to do with the movie and media franchise that comes much later in the 1990s. Stargate is basically just Defender on steroids. It's basically the same game, but it has another button, because you have an invisibility cloak on top of everything else. There are more types of enemies. There's more going on on the screen. and these devices called Stargates, hence the name, where if you use them in the right circumstances, when the right conditions are present, you may be able to use them to warp to an area of the map where some of the humans are currently being threatened. It's the same stop the humans from being abducted off the surface of the planet, moving forward and in reverse in this scrolling but confined world. All of that stuff, got the mini-map, see where you are, but with more buttons, more enemies, and the Stargate, which adds another layer of strategy on top of the already existing strategy. Really, it's Defender except harder. That's what it is. It does okay because Defender was a hit, and of course they marketed it. Williams marketed it as the sequel to Defender. But because it is so hard, there is some diminishing returns. It sold maybe 25,000 units, which, you know, is good, but it's not 55,000 units. I mean, it's it's definitely a step down. It's not really fondly remembered today. You know, I mean, Defender is definitely the bigger and, and more fondly remembered game of the two. But his next game after that, his follow-up to Stargate, is still considered probably just about the best pure action game that has ever existed in the coin-operated game space. You will still occasionally see it pop up on greatest games of all time lists today. That's how incredible it was. Of course, that game is Robotron 2084. Have you played much Robotron 2084? I have not played any Robotron 2084. All I've ever seen is just videos. I've never seen it in the arcades. I've never had a chance to play it. I don't even think I even did any emulator stuff for it. Yeah, you know, I never have either. Obviously, the first time around in 82, you know, we had just been born, so... We weren't going to be playing it in the arcade, but I never played it later either. Just the same as you, I've just seen uh, uh, videos and stuff. But it is absolutely considered just about the best pure action experience that has ever graced the arcade. 
it basically came out of Berserk. Berserk was a game by Stern Electronics. We've talked about it before, where you're running through a maze and shooting robots before they can shoot you. It was inspired by another game that has gone by a variety of names, been ported to a variety of computer platforms, in which you are stuck in the middle of a room with a bunch of robots. In the computer version, you can't shoot them, but what you do is every time you take a step, all the robots in the room take a step towards you by the shortest path possible. Then there are certain obstacles on the screen that if the robots run into them, will kill them. So the strategy is to maneuver these robots in such a way that they walk into these things and blow themselves up. I only went into that backstory because Jarvis himself had played one of these games called Chase, one of these versions of this computer game, the exact same computer game that inspired Berserk. So he was inspired by Berserk, but he was also inspired by the game that inspired Berserk. He had robots on the brain. You know, 1984 was coming up and people were making a big deal about George Orwell's 1984 and all of this loss of freedom and all of that. And he decided that 1984 was probably a bit too soon at this point that we would suddenly have sentient robots that could take over the world. But he thought 2084 might be good for that. So that's where the name comes from. Basically, he liked Berserk, but the one thing he didn't like about Berserk is that you couldn't move in one direction and shoot in another direction. You had a joystick for movement, you had a button for firing. You only shot in a forward direction. So if you wanted to shoot at something behind you, you had to move the joystick back the other direction so that you could shoot the thing behind you. Well, Eugene Jarvis could not see for the life of him why you shouldn't be able to move in one direction and shoot in another direction. So he came up with the greatest of action game inventions, the twin joystick controllers. Ooh. One joystick moves you, the other joystick, you point in the direction you want to shoot, so you can be moving forward and shooting behind you or above you, etc. There had been other games with two joysticks before. Tank, for instance, had two Caterpillar-like steering levers, or I suppose tank-like steering levers as well. Gunfight and its uh, Japanese inspiration Western Gun had had a separate lever that you used to choose the angle that you were firing that was very joystick-like and then a joystick for movement. It wasn't the first game to have two sticks on the cabinet, but it was the first one to come up with this scheme where you're moving one way with one and shooting another way with another. At first, he fooled around with having obstacles and trying to run robots into obstacles in addition to the shooting. That's where the chase inspiration comes from. But in the end, he just decides it's going to be you in the middle of the screen. Single screen game this time, unlike Defender. All around you are going to be robots. And again, multiple types of robots with multiple capabilities, so you have to prioritize targets. They are just going to all be trying to move towards you to kill you. But not just you, Jeffrey. Because then we're back to the same problem that we had with Defender before it became Defender. It's great that there's this screen full of enemies, but it gets old after a while just shooting them. So once again, we need something to defend. How about my family? Exactly. The last human family. The very last one, according to the lore. So you have this family following you around that the robots are trying to capture as well. 
It's very similar to Defender in that sense. It's single screen only, but you have tons and tons of enemies you have to blow up, different capabilities, so you have to prioritize, and you're protecting something as you do it. It's pure action. It's one of the earliest video games that had kind of a graphics co-processor. It had a custom DMA chip that they created that allowed them to put a ridiculous number of objects on the screen at the same time without the hardware slowing down. It was just an order of magnitude greater than even what most action games at that time you saw on the screen at once. It's just pure adrenaline. It still didn't sell as well as Defender because it's coming out in 1982. It's a time when the market is starting to slow down. So it only sells around 20,000 copies, but it is still today considered just about the greatest coin-operated action game ever made, and it deserves the reputation. It just goes back to that core Jarvis philosophy of get that adrenaline pumping, but make sure there's some strategy to keep them coming back. That's kind of the last game of importance in Jarvis's first period of creation. He does one more game in 1983 called Blaster. It's an unofficial sequel to Robotron. It takes place in the year 2085, and the idea is you've gotten the family onto a spaceship. Now your spaceship is trying to escape from the robots. He wanted to experiment with first-person perspective, so it's a first-person shooting game. It has some okay ideas, but it comes out right as the entire market has fallen apart. So it really gets lost. Of all of the games that Jarvis has done, it's probably the most obscure, just because wrong place at the wrong time. At that point, he realizes that this industry is going down the tubes and may not be coming back. So he decides to retreat into graduate school. He closes up shop at VidKids and goes back to Stanford to earn an MBA degree, which he successfully completes in 1986. So our man gets himself a business degree. He's dormant in the industry for several years. But at the end of the 1980s, he is lured back, and he's again lured back by the fact that he just can't stay away from this industry that he loves so much, and that he senses again that the technology is building to a new crescendo, and there's an opportunity to make a mark. So he rejoins Williams, actually as an employee again. He's working for Williams. He puts together a new video game team. Williams had basically gotten out of video games. They were still making pinball, but their video output went dormant with the crash. Well, now Eugene Jarvis is going to bring him back. And we talked about this in the Williams episode. We talked about this some in some other arcade-focused episodes as well. Basically, Jarvis saw that the industry had come to be dominated by the Japanese. And the way that the Japanese dominated the industry in the late 1980s is they had gigantic team sizes, really talented artists, really talented animators. There was just no way for an American company to compete with a Japanese company on graphics and animation. But where Williams could compete is on technology. Because Japan is usually, or at least in this period, is considered to usually just be a little behind technologically. Once they get a handle on a new piece of technology, they do amazing things with it, but they're usually not the first to a new bit of technology. So that's where Eugene Jarvis sees his chance to make his mark. He assembles a brand new team, 
mostly made up of new recruits that have never been involved in this before. But there are a couple of key veterans, most notably Warren Davis, who had created Qbert at Gottlieb. They build a new arcade hardware based on 32-bit processors, based on a big, higher-definition screen. Then Warren Davis and some other people come up with a new system to digitize graphics. What we mean by that is a system in which you could film a real person doing real person things and then convert that into pixel art so that you would have something that looked more lifelike, more realistic, and which moved more realistically. We're not quite talking motion capture yet. That technology isn't quite there yet. But it's similar in concept in that you put them in front of a screen and you have them do all of these actions while you film them for later digitization. They create a very, very ad hoc studio in the Williams facility, basically in a rat-infested corner of the, of the warehouse. It's very primitive. They have to learn everything from scratch. They have no professional movie people. They have to learn, like, lighting, for instance. At first, they were lighting everything from the front because that's what they figured you would do. And then they discovered that, just as cinematographers, it discovered decades before them that if you just light from the front, everything becomes flat because you have no shadows to give depth to the picture. So they had to learn about lighting from the side. They had to learn that if you just had a person walking around, you couldn't really capture that really well. You had to have them on a treadmill So they were constantly in motion. They were learning all of these things about capturing motion on the fly. The end result was a game called NARC. NARC was another one of these just adrenaline junkie action games. It was based on a drug theme. It was a couple of cops that were going in to take down the vicious drug lord, Mr. Big, blowing through all of his drug dealers and junkies and gangsters and everything else to get to him. He did kind of add a strategic element to it in that you could theoretically arrest certain characters as you went along for more points instead of killing them. But nobody really cared about points anymore by this point in the arcade. It was really about progressing through stages and clearing stages, so most people didn't bother to arrest anybody. They just killed everybody. He did a drug theme because actually because he had had several friends who had had problems with addiction. Drugs were a real problem in this period, or at least were perceived to be. The crack cocaine epidemic was going on, etc. That kind of got him on that axis. Of course, things like Miami Vice were on at the same time. Scarface had come out a few years before. So this idea of over-the-top intense action in regards to the drug trade was already something that was kind of established. That was NARC. I remember it from the arcade uh, when I was a kid. I don't know if uh, you remember that one. I don't think I saw that one either. Outside of videos, of course. I definitely saw it in arcades. It was very violent. When you blew people up, limbs would be flying everywhere, blood would be splattering everywhere. The final boss, Mr. Big, you literally blew his head apart piece by piece. You blew his face off. You blew the muzzle off. You blew his skull up. You know, I mean, just progressively tunneling through his body (laughs) as you went. It was like nothing anyone had ever seen before because it had a certain lifelike quality to it that you just didn't get from cartoon animation. And we'll put it in the show notes. It will look kind of hokey compared to stuff today. But I can speak just from experience, even uh, as a kid in the arcade in 1989, 1990, that this was truly something new and unique and something that stood out 
amongst other games. You know, it wasn't the greatest hit in the world, but it was a minor hit, and it signified the return of Williams as a major player, and it was the beginning of that digitization technology that they used to such good effect in games like Mortal Kombat and NBA Jam. Now, Jarvis himself didn't have anything to do with Mortal Kombat or NBA Jam. You don't get there without Jarvis doing it first, assembling this team, assembling this idea of technology overall with NARC. So it's an incredibly significant game for that reason. The other major game that he does in this period with Williams is the game Smash TV. I know you're familiar with Smash TV. I am familiar with Smash TV, though the only version of it I played was the NES version. Right. Smash TV wasn't strictly Eugene Jarvis's brainchild, but it was the brainchild of an individual by the name of Mark Turmel. Mark Turmel had been a teenage programming prodigy in the early 1980s. He wasn't working in coin-op then, but he was working on the Atari 2600 as a teenager, a true prodigy. Well, flash forward to the early 90s here, or the late 80s, early 90s, and he ends up coming to work. He is hired to work at Williams on their coin-op games. He was a huge Eugene Jarvis fan going way back. He was a huge Robotron 2084 fan. What he wanted to do was essentially make an update or sequel to Robotron 2084. Jarvis was very much on board with this because in his original version, his original conception of the game, he thought it would have been great if it had been like Berserk, where once you clear a room, you move on to another room and you progress through a series of rooms blowing up everything in sight. Obviously, in Robotron, you do blow up everything in sight over and over again, but it's always within this one single contained space. There's no labyrinth of any kind. So they basically took the Robotron gameplay, expanded it so that you were moving through multiple rooms instead of just one room, then added this whole ridiculous over-the-top game show motif that was based on some of the dystopian sci-fi movies of the time, like The Running Man starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, and uh, RoboCop, specifically the kind of ridiculous, over-the-top advertising scenes in RoboCop. I'd buy that for a dollar, all of that kind of thing. That's Smash TV, and it's more Termel's creation than Jarvis's creation, but Jarvis was involved with it, and it owed itself entirely to that earlier Robotron 2084. They did another version then in 1993 called Total Carnage, which takes place in a South American dictatorship, again, very much like some Schwarzenegger action movies like uh, Commando or Predator. Again, it's one of these blow-up-everything-in-sight kind of games. By then, our good friend Jarvis is already on the way out again. He does this, Jeffrey. He does this. Please and terror. He did these early games at Williams. He was basically in charge of video game development at Williams. But he really wanted to get back down in the trenches again. He didn't want to be in charge of this stuff. He wanted to be making games. He was very intrigued by what was coming in virtual reality and thought that he would do work in VR. So he leaves Williams to do his own thing again. Again, Williams is going to publish his work. He's not cutting ties with Williams, but he's no longer going to be at the company. He's no longer leading video game efforts at Williams. The VR stuff doesn't work out, not surprising. As we know, we did a VR episode and VR just wasn't there at the time. But he got really interested then in doing a driving game. The main takeaways here is something with polygonal graphics, with 3D graphics, because that's starting to come in. But then also with this technology bent they've been having, 
having the racetracks not just be raceways that are drawn cartoonily or whatever, but actually go out into the U.S., into the wide-open United States, film scenery in the United States, and then use that digitization technology to put that scenery into the game. So that's how we get the classic racing game, Cruisin' USA. If you only know Cruisin' USA from the N64 version, you're going to have probably a pretty horrible opinion of Cruisin' USA. And I do. Cruisin' USA on the N64 was terrible, not Jarvis's thing. But the arcade game, the coin-op hardware, was actually really quite good, (laughs) unlike the N64 port. It was touted as running on N64 hardware because Williams was one of the companies that made up the so-called Dream Team that was going to publish exclusive content for the N64 in return for early access to the specs so that they could have launch titles or near-launch titles. Cruising USA didn't quite make the launch, but it was supposed to. As part of that and as part of their plan to promote the N64 as having the best graphics around, arcade-quality graphics, Nintendo touted that Cruisin' USA was running on the N64 hardware, a souped-up version of it. They had to come clean a few months later and say that was a lie. (laughs) The arcade version was actually on a different kit that was created by Williams. You know, it had those great graphics. It, of course, was high-speed adrenaline because it's Eugene Jarvis. It always is. It did very well in the arcade. Now, its competition was a little game called Daytona USA, which was absolutely insanely wildly popular, far and away one of the most popular video arcade games of all time, certainly the most popular racing video game of all time. So it never quite topped the charts. Because Daytona USA was always ahead of it. But you know, when Daytona was number one, Cruising USA was often number two. Later in their life, when Daytona USA was number three, Cruising USA was number four. So it was neck and neck with Daytona. Never quite as successful, but always kind of close. Nipping at the heels. Exactly. And they made subsequent versions of it, and that was a lot of what kept them busy for the rest of the 1990s was doing this stuff. So fast forward to 2001 and Midway, which we may recall Williams had bought Midway from Bally. At that point, they marketed all of their video games under the Midway name, even though it was the Williams factory, it was the Williams employees, it was all Williams, but it was the Midway name. So like Mortal Kombat was done by Midway, but that's really Williams just using the Midway name because the Midway name was bigger in video games because they had imported Space Invaders and Galaxian and Pac-Man and on and on and on. So in 2001, Midway decides that they are getting out of coin-op. They're done. The market is just not there anymore. What little market is left is really being dominated by the Japanese. Their latest games have not been doing as well as their older games had. So in 2001, they are done. This is the point that Eugene Jarvis breaks out on his own, 2001, and in conjunction with two other guys named Deepak Dio and Andrew Eloff, founds a company called Raw Thrills in Skokie, Illinois, you know, in in the Chicago suburbs. Most of the staff is ex-Williams people. 
it's his intent with this company to stay in coin-op, which has always been his first love. He's never really wanted to be involved in other aspects of the industry. The name Raw Thrills, if you don't know why he called it that, then you haven't been paying attention to this episode. (laughs) I think we know by now what drives Eugene Jarvis in this business. Adrenaline. (laughs) So at first, Raw Thrills is just doing work on slot machines and other gambling style games. They get a contract with IGT, which is a big player in the gaming industry, read slot machines, not to be confused with the games industry, but the gaming industry. That's where the money is. That's where they can get things going. In 2004, they finally released their first game, a light gun game called Target Terror, kind of riffing off of the uh, Silent Scope Konami game, I guess, a little bit there, and that you're, you know, shooting at stuff. Then their big breakthrough is also that same year, because of Eugene Jarvis's history with adrenaline-fueled racing games, they're able to secure a license for the Fast and the Furious movie franchise. So they create a Fast and the Furious driving game, which is basically a spiritual successor to the Cruise in USA series, just with the Fast and Furious license. That's a very popular movie series, so that does them some real good. They create multiple games in that series. Then in 2006... They're approached by another former Williams employee named George Petro. Petro had gone off and founded his own company and had made his mark with a game called Big Buck Hunter, a deer shooting game, hunting game, light guns. He had realized that about that time there had been several really popular home console deer hunting games, kind of budget-priced games, so they were cheap. They appealed to a certain segment of the population that wasn't being fulfilled by other things, so they sold really well. And he was like, well, why the heck isn't this in coin-op? I mean, this is a period of time when coin-op's in decline, but still, it's like, why is this not in coin-op? Because then you can have a custom rifle controller, have a bigger screen with the, the deer on it. You can really make these people feel as close as you can to actually hunting. He goes to a different Chicago coin-op company, Incredible Technologies which is most famous for the Golden Tee Golf series of arcade games, and brings them this idea, and they're like, great, let's do it. Lo and behold, it becomes successful. Just because it was successful doesn't mean it was necessarily so successful for Mr. Petro and his company, because he found that he really wasn't making much money on it. He was basically kind of breaking even on it. He wanted to do a a big overhaul. He wanted to update the graphics, create kind of a new generation version, Incredible Technologies was kind of cool on the idea of funding that at the time. So Petro turned around and went to his old boss and mentor and friend, Eugene Jarvis, and said, why don't we collaborate on the next generation of Big Buck Hunter? So they do. In 2006, they release Big Buck Hunter Pro through Raw Thrills. It's jointly developed, and then Raw Thrills releases it. This is, I think, really the hit. That and the Fast and the Furious thing is what really sustains them in this period. Now, they're not making games in either of those series anymore. But I think in the early 2000s, when the future of the arcade was in doubt and it was really hard to see where it was going and it was really hard to stay relevant in the field, I think having these two games, the one being a license, Fast and the Furious, the other being the joint development on the Big Buck Hunter games, I think is what really allowed them to get going. 
Since then, they have done a variety of other games, many of them based on licenses, not quite all of them, but lots of them. They ended up doing the Guitar Hero arcade game. Konami partnered with them on that. They got a Terminator license and did a fairly popular Terminator Salvation game. They did a couple of Aliens games. They got that license. Again, light gun games. They've continued to do racing games of this and that. They got a Halo license. They did a Nerf game. I mean, it's kind of a combination of licensed properties, many of them using light gun controllers, because that's one of the few things that you can still get an arcade experience that you can't get in the home, which is a real solid plastic gun peripheral and a gigantic screen to point it at, and then racing games based on their longstanding expertise. That's basically where they are today. As I said, they're still in business. It's not a huge market, but it does well enough to keep the team, a couple of dozen people employed. It allows Eugene Jarvis to keep doing what he loves more than anything else and bring new adrenaline-filled experiences to the general public. I don't particularly find deer hunting to be an adrenaline junkie thing, but I do know there are a bunch of hunters out there that do really get into that kind of thing. Absolutely. It's it's not as intense as Terminator Salvation or Jurassic Park Arcade, some of their other licenses, but, you know, it, it paid some bills along the way. So, yeah, that's the story of Eugene Jarvis. It's a story that's not quite over yet, though at this point there's unlikely to be anything more significant to tell. He'll probably run raw thrills until the arcade market completely collapses or he decides to retire. And at this point, he's not going to create anything probably that's newly significant since the coin-op industry doesn't exert much of an influence on the wider video game industry anymore. You know, it's just an example of a guy that likes a particular type of game, a particular type of venue, and has been able to stick to it. And of course, along the way, has on literally multiple occasions, redefined the entire history of video games from uh, the crazy action of Defender to the digitization technology of NARC, truly one of the great game designers in history. I think it's more apt to say that he's one of the unique ones and that he's been in the entire industry more or less the majority of its life. From that early time of Atari, Space War all the early arcade stuff, all the way now into the modern era. He still has a light touch in there, but he's still in there. Absolutely. I don't think we can think of many or any other people who have that kind of pedigree. Yeah, I mean, probably the only other one is uh, Gary Stern at Stern Pinball. You know, he's not a game designer. He's been an executive the entire time. He's stayed in it, in coin-op, throughout this entire period, more or less, but Certainly as a game designer, there's nobody else. And, you know, there's there's a few other people. I mean, Ken Fidesna actually is even still kicking around out there. But again, that's management. Eugene Jarvis is unique in that he has stayed on the development front lines. I mean, even though he has a team that's doing most of the work now and he's running the company, it's a small company. So, I mean, he remains very much on the front lines when it comes to making these games. And like you said, yeah, there's nobody that was designing video games, arcade video games in 1980 it still has his hand in designing arcade video games today, I don't think. Maybe some random person in Japan. Certainly not many. All right. Well, since that pretty much wraps up Eugene Jarvis, and at least if he comes up with something that really blows up the scene, we'll certainly come back and revisit this. What will we delve into next time? 
Well, we've been straying from our uh, our primary focus, Jeffrey. Video games? I think we've done pretty good at staying on target there. I mean, I, I guess there was that one episode where we did nothing but talk about amplifiers and calculators. <laughs> but for the most part, I think we're pretty good on staying on video games. But we haven't been doing companies, Jeff. We do... C- I thought we just did history of video games. Yeah, but it seems like we keep going back to companies. Funny how that works out. Well, there are many, 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 many companies. And I think it's about time that we uh, did another one, because it's actually been a while. For us, it's been a while since we've done a company history. This time, I think we should turn our attention to a little toy and game company called Parker Brothers. Parker Brothers. That's right, the Monopoly people. They make board games. Lots of board games. And Nerf. Okay, and Nerf, too. I mean, you run around and shoot the little dart thing, and you wonder where that entire pack of 100 went, and when you're down to, like, three. But, yeah, it's physical products, not video games. In the early 1980s, when the entire toy industry seemed to be going to video games, when Mattel had its own system, when Coleco had its own system, when Milton Bradley even had its own video game system, Parker Brothers very briefly made the decision to get into the video game industry. They did very, very well for themselves. They were on their way to probably being one of the biggest players in the industry. But of course, they made the decision to get in right before this little thing called the uh, North American video game crash happened, which we may have discussed once or 500 times. More the North American home console market crash than anything. Exactly. They had a meteoric rise, a meteoric fall, and it really shaped the future of the company, which no longer exists as an independent company. A lot of the reason why it it no longer does exist is really has to do with that video game legacy. So there's a lot to talk about there. We'll talk about a little bit of uh, Parker Brothers history generally, but then with a focus on their very brief, very lucrative, and then very disastrous foray into the video game industry. Sounds like fun. We will go roll the dice next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Welcome to the end. This is Surprise 2. <laughs>